what is the number one thing, the most important thing to know, pay attention to, adjust, tweak, et cetera, if you want to be a happy, healthy runner? Well, we're going to dive into that today on this episode of the Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body starting feet first, you know, those things that are at the end of your legs that are the foundation of the rest of your body. We're also here to break down the propaganda and the mythology and sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to run or walk or hike or play or do yoga or CrossFit or skydive or dance, dance revolution or play golf, whatever it is, you know, and if you, especially if you want to do it enjoyably and effectively and efficiently and did I say enjoyably? Trick question. I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, you're not going to keep doing it. So do something that you enjoy. I'm Stephen Sashin, co-founder, co-CEO of Zero Shoes. I got the t-shirt to prove it. And I'm the host of the Movement Movement podcast, which we call it that. That was almost a sentence because we, and that involves you, more about that in a second. It's really easy. We are creating a movement about natural movement, letting your body do what it's made to do, not getting in the way. And so the way you can inv get involved is really easy. Go to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. There's nothing you have to do to join. There's not like a secret handshake. There's no money involved. It's just that's where you find all the previous episodes, uh, the ways you can engage with us on social media, um, and where you can go to you know leave a thumbs up or a like or a review or hit the bell icon on YouTube to get notified of new episodes. Subscribe to get notified about new episodes. In fact, that's really the gist of it. Just spread the word. You know, if you want to be part of the tribe subscribe so here we go all right let us have some fun doug do me a favor tell people who you are and what you do and why you're here well uh that was a great intro i love that here i oh, love dude, the movement I've done, movement I've done it like here. 200 times it's just you know i just turn I, I, know. I hit the button and it comes out of my face but thank you yeah yeah no that's great i'm in i'm, I'm signing up for the movement movement myself here so uh I am a giant running nerd is probably the best way to describe me. So I'm a physical therapist by trade. Um, and I've got a shirt on to show that I'm the uh, CEO of Run DNA since we're, we're touting our shirts here. Um, so I uh, basically Run DNA provides the tools and the training for people that want to specialize in working with runners. We provide that infrastructure. So if somebody's looking for education or technology or resources and they say, hey, I love the running community. I want to serve them. I want to help them. And I'd love to make a business out of it. Uh, we are the source for that. And so, yeah. But I'm going to interrupt you because for people who aren't looking to have a business helping runners, let's get into the part that's the my favorite part, which is the how you're doing that or how these people are doing that yes. the thing that you have developed, which is what we're going to be talking about predominantly. Right. Because it all comes back to the runner at the end. And that's what I've spent my career on. And um, so I, I uh, because I'm a giant running nerd, I work with runners all day, every day. And part of uh, building Run DNA was also really um, building up my own running practice. And I now work a lot with the military. I am a, the team PT for a professional uh, Adidas running team. And I basically just work with running and runners all day long. So lots to share with the actual running community as well here okay i'm gonna uh, you, man you're just not giving me what i'm looking for so here's where i'm know. going the tool that yes. you use that is the primary thing that you do to help these runners is what yes. doug <laughs> gate analysis there running gate analysis there <laughs> yes now, yeah now, there's more to it than that i want to put a bookmark in yes. that 
um, because there's more to it than just gait analysis. There are a lot of people who are trying to do gait analysis. You walk into almost any running store, running shoe store, they've got a treadmill with a camera and a 20 year old kid who learned how to hit rewind on the tape recorder. And do they have video recorders, whatever they have, you know, to look at it and tell you something, but you're in a whole different game. And so actually let's talk about what you've developed first. And then I want to talk about um, the next thing I want to jump into is the where we met part and how relevant that is to where we met and how this relates to anybody listening to this who either is a runner, wants to be a runner, knows a runner, used to be a runner, thinks about running, you know, running. So talk about your magic technology, which is really, really cool. Yeah, so maybe give a little bit of a background of how created it might uh, kind of take us to there. So I, uh, physical therapist, like I said, and started, and I was really lucky to have great mentorship with Irene Davis, Rich Willie, Lynn Sander-Mackler, amongst others, and just learn gait analysis as a student. And then in my early career, I was really lucky to see uh, just really the research side of that. And what we discovered as we were going about is that there's not actually, there's no perfect way to run, but there are imperfect ways to run that can put a lot of stress on the body. And addressing those things makes a huge difference. And one of my favorite running studies shows you that for people that think gait analysis is uh, out of reach for them or it doesn't benefit them, um, it's for everybody. It's for every level of runner from a new person up to the very highest level. Um, you know, I've worked with people that run 346 miles and I've worked with people that run 1046 miles. Um, gait analysis is a, is a crucial component of of that. So what we did is we started realizing that these imperfect ways, there were categories and that there's certain things that runners fit into. And we made up these five categories that we actually noticed were very related to research items that we found that were correlated to high injury rates and poor performance. So we took these five categories and I started teaching courses called Certified Running Gate Analyst. And we got a lot of great response to that. And we started teaching this. And now we've had about 10,000 people uh, go through our courses. And we've had a lot of great response to that. And we've got people all over the country, over the world now, that are certified to analyze gait, which is a huge benefit for runners. Um, But then we started realizing that to do it at the highest level, we need the most accurate uh, information that's available immediately. So I looked around at camera systems and and to do gate analysis and quickly realized that I didn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in that. So I built my own camera system that was really designed for clinicians and for runners to get immediate feedback and for them to understand, hey, this is my most important thing that I need to do and this is how I'm going to change it. And then when they do, you can quickly retest and see, did they actually make a difference? So that's um, that's what we really kind of led us to this point. And then we've done a lot of work with the military. Um, so we got grants and funding through the military to develop our technology even further. And now it's got all sorts of algorithms and apps and everything that go with it. Um, but the, the net net of it for the runner is that when you get a gate analysis with our 3D, you understand what category you're in, exactly how to fix it. You get an email every day telling you, here's what you need to do. Here's a video of how to do this exercise or this drill and how to go and make a significant change. Because if you make a 10% reduction in stress with each step, you can run twice as far before your body breaks down. 10% is easy to do. 
if you're looking to make a big impact in your running and you haven't had a gait analysis, that's probably the thing that's holding you back from achieving the goals that you really want with running. Now I got to put a pin there because again, there are lots of people and lots of places where they claim to do gait analysis. And Mm -hmm. more often than not, like, again, if you go to a running shoe store, they're going to put you on a treadmill. They're going to film you from the knees down. Maybe if they're smart from the hips down um, or smarter from the hips down. And they're doing this so they can say to you something like, Hey, you pronate. Hey, you supinate. Mm -hmm. Hey, fill in the blank eight. And therefore you need to wear this shoe. Um, Yes. Would it be fair if I just made the statement or you can tell me if you disagree with the statement, that's all bullshit. (laughs) Uh, I think I would agree. So I, I yeah, so here's the thing, right? Here's when people I, ask me the difference. I, I knew between, I, I knew I was pushing you on that one, but I couldn't help myself. No, I love it. And it's like, um, here's the thing. Like for those of you watch, if you can't, if you're not watching it uh, and if you're listening to it, I'll explain what I'm doing here, but I'm turning my finger to the side right now here. And if I'm holding three fingers up, if I hold it in two dimensions, it looks like I'm giving you the middle finger here. Right. So, but if I turn my hand, now you see that I'm not giving you the middle finger you're holding, and you're that's holding. really what. Yeah. You, yeah. You, and yeah. Just to explain it just for the fun of it, because actually this is a fun thing you, yeah. people can do, uh, you know, like yeah. put your forefinger and your the tip of your forefinger and tip of your thumb together. So making a circle, hold your other fingers straight up. Uh, and then from the side, you know, it can it, if you do it the right way uh, where the thumb and forefinger are facing somebody, it can look like you're flipping somebody off. And otherwise you see a right. 3D, whole different game. So uh, that was a that, I think that was a good politically correct way of answering my question. So, yes. Well, so there's some science, the scientific way of answering it is that our eyes only see about maximum 16 frames per second. So when somebody just watches you run, if somebody's just watching you run, you have to be very careful because there's something called brain sponging that your brain actually fills in what you want to see if you don't have a high enough frame rate for it there. So if they're filming you in 3D, in 2D, and they're using higher frame rate, at least 60 frames per second, they're going to get more information. But like we just did with the the middle finger experiment here, it's okay, but you're not getting all of the information. And a runner needs the most important information for them. So if you're not getting 3D, you're not getting the whole picture. And best case, it doesn't help. Worst case, it makes you worse. Well, and what I love about your system is you developed a you, you're doing it's doing two things. You've developed something that will give you all the uh, the joint angles, joint moment arms. I mean, all the physics that you need in something th- mm-hmm. with with 3D information with the simplest setup I've ever seen. You know, normally you'll go somewhere for any sort of gain analysis. And it is this like looks like it's out of some sci-fi movie for what they have mm-hmm. to do and your stuff i mean I'm, I'm exaggerating for the fun of it it practically fits in a suitcase and away you go um i mean it's really it, the, just the technology itself is quite brilliant and the information you're giving someone is quite impressive as well and to to the point about frame rate um, when I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, who used to be the head of biomechanics for the U.S. Olympic Committee, he wouldn't do anything under mm-hmm. 250 frames a second. And he would say, because mm-hmm. you, you really need that. And I said, and he was actually filming at 500 frames a second, which needs a lot of light, which makes you very hot when you're under those lights. But regardless, I thought that was kind of overkill until I saw in my own gait analysis that right before my right foot was hitting the ground, it was everting, turning out just a tiny bit in a way that was putting strain on my hamstring. And and literally at anything under 250, anything under 
Yeah. Anything under 260 frames a second, you wouldn't have seen it. So it was like the last two frames in that 500 frames a second. So it was pretty wild to see. So there's that component. But backing up to, you know, my uh, rather bold assertion of um, of male cows and their excrement, the thing about what happens when most people go into a running shoe store is they're trying to, you know, they're, they basically learn to tell you something that they can then use to sell you something. But the, I'm going to use pronation as an example. There's a uh, footwear, mm, let's call, I don't know what to call him. Um, in fact, I'm not even going to mention his name. Anyway, big deal footwear guy who used to be Mr. Anti-Pronation and then changed mm-hmm. his tune. And when people asked him why he changed his tune, he said, because in the research, there's now enough showing there's no correlation between pronation and injury. So it's not something yeah. that needs to be corrected. Um, now that said, there's hyperpronation. There are other things that are related to that. And of course, now that I said that, everyone's going to go, oh, well, I must hyperpronate. Otherwise, they wouldn't have recommended this shoe. So trust me, the odds of you hyperpronating are very slim. Unless, ironically, unless you're often wearing one of the shoes they recommend. So, um, and to explain that, just to get into the physics, but then I want to back to you for the wind, Doug. If you have a shoe that's recommended with has a big flare, like if you look at the heel of the shoe, you look at it from behind, and if the sole flares out, um, then there's a high probability you you will be an overpronator, a hyperpronator, because the thing that touches the ground first, that outside edge of the sole, is actually making your foot kind of slap the ground as it comes uh, to being essentially horizontal, and that can cause hyperpronation because if you don't have the muscle strength to control that, and most people don't, especially if they end up wearing those shoes. So that's neither here nor there. But um, so. I, one of the things that I really loved, we met at an event called the Mountainland Running Summit, which is put on in Park City, Utah by uh, a physical therapy rehab training facility. And they bring about 200 physical therapists in from mostly around, you know, Utah-ish, but people fly in from all over as well. And it's a bunch of researchers talking about the cause and cure of running injuries. And one the, the thing I want to really... Um, harp on when I, cause we're going to get into the five categories of problems, but I want to start mm-hmm. with my favorite because a, it's my favorite and B you, you, you did something that I adore that I want people to play with. So I've been to these events for years and usually there's arguments about, you know, what caused the running injuries. And th- this time there were some, let's call them minor variations on a theme about what causes running injuries. But there was one thing that every one of the people who has anything to do with gait brought up, and they all agreed on this. And that is a perhaps the number one cause of problems is overstriding, is landing with your foot too far out in front of your body. They all said that. That's the first time I've ever seen that happen. And these were you know people with very disparate backgrounds and very different practices, some of them just total researchers, some clinicians, some trainers, but every one of them, overstriding was a problem. Is it fair to say that that might be one of the five categories of things that are problematic? That is the number one category of <laughs> yes. uh, what is problematic. So you That's nailed it my there. Favorite. Well, now yes. here's the here's my my the next favorite thing. So you had uh, a treadmill set up with your system recording people, and you get this cool 3D uh, stick figure of you showing how you're running. And mm-hmm. I don't tell me if this is accurate. It, it's probably not. But everybody that I saw that you did analysis for, and these are physical therapists, and some of them are really accomplished runners. Every one of them overstriding. I think it was at that conference particularly. I think it probably was about seventy five percent were yeah. were overstriding. I didn't, see, yeah, I didn't see everybody, yeah. but the part yeah. that I yeah. that I 
Well, the part that I also loved is the people that were overstriding, if you asked them if they were overstriding, they would have assured you that they were not. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's what's so challenging about running and why I say that running is one of the most highly skilled activities that people ever do. Far more challenging than even something like golf, that everyone thinks that golf or hitting a baseball is really hard. But those are discrete activities where you get feedback about a very definitive start and end. And running is a continuous activity that you get no feedback. And how fast you run is not a determinant of how well you're running from a form and technique standpoint. So running is one of the most challenging things to actually know if you're doing well. And that's why the 3D information gives you the feedback and the information that you need to actually make a difference. Brilliant. And, you know, I want to highlight that because a lot of people will um, look at some analysis that someone has done of professional runners, which first of all, it's just to the point we made before, video at between 16 and you know 60 frames a second tops, where what you're seeing can be easily misinterpreted because what an elite runner is doing, um, especially with how fast they're moving across that ground, is very different than what you're doing if you're going at half that speed. So someone will say, well, that guy landed on his heel. It's like, yeah, his heel barely touched the ground um, because he and his leg is moving so fast as it's coming back underneath his body that for all practical purposes, he didn't. And or more importantly, who gives a shit? Because that guy is trying to make as much money as he can before his, he's washed up because he needs to support his village. So, you know, the fact that someone is doing X doesn't mean it's the right thing to do for you if you want to have a long I don't even want to say career, a long, a, a lengthy, I'll say career, a lengthy running career, even if your career is as a total amateur who's just doing it for fun. Yes. Yeah. Um, 100%. Replicating professionals is uh, a great way to get injured. I like some, when I first started working with professionals, they were trying to replicate each other. And that was causing all sorts of issues, too. They're like, oh, well, I see the Kenyans run this way or I see, you know, Kipchoge is running this way. Like, I should run this way. And I was like, no, you shouldn't run that way. Like, that's not the way like and what you're doing that you think is running like that professional doesn't look at all like what they're doing, too. And they just don't get the feedback. So it's it's very challenging for them if they don't know what it actually looks like. Well, this is what you just said is basically a researcher named Ben O'Nig. He's basically staked his career on what you just said, which is, you mm -hmm. know, don't arbitrarily change your form because that's going to get you injured, um, which I disagree with. And I would imagine you do as well. The arbitrary part is the key part. But he basically says, yeah. don't change your form. There's a way that's natural for you to run. And you just want to do that, which I disagree with because a... Um, you learned that form in part because of the shoes you started wearing because those impact your mm -hmm. form. And B, um, you know, you give someone the right cue, the right feedback, it will change your form. If you, And if you do it yes. smart in a good way. I mean, you know, he would never say that about gymnasts. You, you know, it's like there's right. a correct way of doing a double backflip and, you know, or the way you do a double backflip is like, no, no, no. There's a way to do a double backflip fundamentally, you know, minor, yes. minor variations. But the but the 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 overarching things identical about anyone who can do a double backflip. I give two analogies with that. I say when I was five, I would shoot a basketball underhand 
because that's how I knew how to do it. So uh, nobody in the NBA shoots underhand because that's how they learn to do it. But runners think because they were born to run a certain way, this is how they should do it. Um, so it's not true. And then for my physical therapist group, I say, hey, if you saw a pitcher and they're throwing and their elbows dropping way down, would you fix that? Oh yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Right. And then you say, well, you see an over, you see somebody over striding when they run, would you fix that? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, what do you mean? You don't know. Like it's well, the know, same thing. But here's the thing. Yeah. The reason they say, I don't know, I would contend is because a, they see so many like professional runners seemingly overstriding, or maybe they are overstriding and they don't mm-hmm. know what was being presented um, by all these researchers that, yeah, that actually is a cause of many, many problems. And mm-hmm. and maybe because they don't even know what to do about it. So they don't want to fess up and go, yeah, I'd want to fix it. So yeah. in fact, why don't we, before we get into the other four categories, let's, let's start with the number one. Let's talk about overstriding and talk about why it is that it causes the types of problems that it can cause. Yeah. So um, when we run, right, our foot hits the ground, but the ground hits our foot and there's equal and opposite reactions. Right. So when you overstride, what happens is that there's also often a very large horizontal and vertical ground reaction force, meaning that the ground hits your foot harder and there's higher forces experienced and it causes a breaking moment. So I when somebody's overstriding, I ask them to stand up. And I have them put their foot in a position of overstriding. And I say, does this look like you're speeding up or slowing down? They're like, oh, it looks like I'm putting the brakes on. It's like, yeah, that's exactly it. When you overstride, you're slowing your momentum down with each step. That causes a very large amount of force opposing the way that you're trying to run. So that puts a lot of stress and it goes up the body. And additionally, what we found is that the position that you're in, in overstriding is not conducive for absorbing the forces. So I say like people have heard of like the kinetic chain before, right? I kind of use a train analogy. Our body, our lower body and our upper body too, but acts like a train stop, right? Each joint people forces get off at each train stop. If you're not getting off at one train stop, the next train stop is overcrowded and everyone has to get off. So if you're not absorbing force adequately, your ankle or your knee, guess where it's all going to? Your hip, your back, all the areas on the next stop. So with overstriding, we see that you're often in a position where the knee is straight, you're in a heel strike position, the foot is very far out in front of the hip. So you're not only increasing the forces, but you're increasing the torque on the body, right? And the way to explain that torque is, if I were to give you five pounds of weight and have you hold it next to your chest, you could hold it for a long time. If I asked you to hold that five pounds with your elbow straight out in front of you, you could hold it for not nearly as long. So that's torque. The further something is from you, the more stress it puts at the center of the rotation. So my holding the weight example would put stress on my shoulder. The overstriding example puts stress at the hip. So it increases the forces and it puts your body in a way that it's not really designed to absorb those higher forces. What do you say to people who say, yeah, but all the shoe companies and when I go to the running shoe store, they tell me I'm supposed to, you know, go heel toe, heel toe. What do you say to them? It's not as much about what part of the foot hits the ground as opposed to where the foot lands in relationship to your center of mass. And now saying that, 
the closer you land to your body, the harder it is to land anywhere but the mid or forefoot. So when you're doing it, and it, the, you know, for people at home that want to learn that lesson very quickly, jog in place for a second, if you're healthy to do so, jog in place for a second. And now where are you landing on, right? You're landing right underneath of your center of mass. So you're probably landing on your, t- like on the front of your foot. Now try it on your heels and see how that feels. And all of a sudden, it will not feel so good. You'll start shaking your teeth. There's so much force is happening there. So, um, what we but I'm running in place. That's different, right? He says sarcastically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, um, but it's true. Like when what we see is that the further the foot is in front of the body, the more stress that there is. So when we look at overstriding, there's a qualitative way to look at to see if you're on overstriding. Whereas if you do get a video or a picture of yourself running from the side, there's something called the malleolar line. So if you draw a line straight up from your outside ankle bone, and if that line, you draw it straight vertically, if that line goes in front of your knee, you likely have some overstriding characteristics in your form there. Um, so that's, when we've that's done- the run, That's the running version of you might be a redneck. So. Yes, you might be an overstrider if, yeah, you're, you might be a redneck, Jeff Fox are there. Yeah, yep. Um, so overstriding is the most common thing that we see. And um, when we teach our courses, we teach the therapist the hierarchy of these. Because what we see is we talked about these five categories and we haven't introduced the other ones, but it's rare that somebody just has one of the categories. Yeah. If you think about it, when you overstride, your body has to find a way to absorb those forces. And so our next category is the collapser. And that's one of the most common things that we see that somebody that overstrides may also have some collapsing mechanics, but the collapsing mechanics go away when you fix the overstriding because they don't have to overcome the high forces. So the whole thing we do is let's prioritize and personalize what you need so that you don't try to fix your collapsing hip mechanics there and wondering why you can't make a difference because you're still overstriding. So our technology lets you prioritize. Can you describe what collapsing is? Yes. Um, Sorry. uh, Will you please? For the, yeah, will I? Yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, So for the biomechanist and the the nerds out there, right, you're losing the frontal and transverse plane battle. And what that means is that when we run, a lot of people think that we're just going straight forward and they kind of say like, oh, it's a single plane sport. You're just running in a straight line. You're not, that's not very athletic, but you're fighting the forces of gravity that are pulling you in the other planes of motion. So what happens when we run is gravity pulls things like pulls our knees together uh, and it forces our hips to collapse. So when we see collapsing and collapsing can happen at multiple areas throughout the body, but that's what we see typically with the excessive or hyperpronation genuvalgus or the knees coming inward and the pelvic drop where you stand on one leg and the opposite hip drops down. So that's where we typically see collapsing mechanics. There's uh, an article that I, or uh, an email that I used to send out, and I don't even know if I still do actually, where Glenn Mills, who was Usain Bolt's coach, said what turned mm-hmm. him in, you know, turned him from a very good 400 meter runner into the fastest 100 meter runner in the world was working on uh, getting him to stop collapsing. Basically, working, I don't want to say yes. core strength, that's a little misunderstood, but that's the gist of what he said. Because uh, it was more more to it than that, but you know, basically make him making him a tighter spring, a more taut spring. Yes, 
rather than yes. having any of those things collapse. And that, you know, the, and if you watch him run, you know, you see that it's like when his, when he hits the ground, when his foot hits the ground, you don't see his, you know, everything being like a slinky just going, Ooh, you know, there's mm-hmm. very, just a tiny bit of vertical oscillation, mostly from the difference between when he's on his toes for when he's not on his toes. I mean, that's really, yeah. it. um, and that's, yeah. you know, that that was just, that's what they worked on for a year. So you hit on a very interesting point. I don't know if you noticed this during the gait analysis, but we have a measurement called stiffness. Mm-hmm. And we look at somebody's stiffness and there's still, I'll, I'll put a little disclaimer on this. The literature around stiffness is still developing, but what we're starting to understand now that we've done it, interestingly enough uh, here, we've been measuring stiffness for years uh, with our system. There's something called the spring mass model system. And it looks like exactly like you described. If you have more stiffness, the spring would go through less motion. Uh, like if you have, a low amount of stiffness, you would go through more emotion as the spring or like an accordion goes. So what we found is that from a performance standpoint, when we find a more efficient form, the stiffness goes up. And the reason that we think that is, is that because your body is efficiently using its natural springiness and it's naturally getting recoil. So people don't always uh, this is a little bit of a, a clickbait kind of thing, but running is largely passive. And what I mean by that is that when you run, your body absorbs forces during the first half of your time on the ground, the absorption phase. When you are propelling yourself forward, that is largely passive. Mm-hmm. 95% of the energy that you absorb in the first half of stance can be returned in the propulsive phase if your body is lined up in the appropriate position. So running is not a large push-off activity. It is a large set your body up for success and put your body in the right posture so that you can passively get the return of what your body did working to absorb those forces. So you have to really be an efficient spring. And that's why my professional runners, I wear, and all runners, but I really work a lot on jumping mechanics and landing and plyometric type activities because that springiness, that stiffness is really important. Um, uh, I'm, I may be bragging when I say this next thing, if you know what I'm talking about, and I imagine you will, do you know the RSI test? RSI? No, I can't say, yeah, hold on. Enlighten me here. I want to hear about this. RSI test, you put your hands on your hips and you have to videotape this at like 240 frames a second. Put your hands on your hips, kind of squat down and then just jump and then keep your knees as straight as you can. And basically just bounce using your feet and ankles like 10 times. And you just average the amount of time you're in the air. And, uh, mm. the number, there's basically some math, math that goes along with this. The gist of it is yeah. the higher you're able to jump, the more airtime you have, the springier you are starting with your feet and ankles, tiny bit in your knees, very little in your hips yes. of anything and anything over yeah. not to get into the, all the details. If you have an RSI score of like over 2.5, you know, you're crushing it. If you're an RSI score over nice. three, you're like one of the most elite athletes in the world. And, um, yeah. I'm dealing with a lot of basketball players and I'm, you know, five, four on a good day. Actually, I'm five, five on a good day, five, four on most days because um, I got spine issues, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, you know, when I hang out with these guys, I need to do something to get a little respect. So I'll either do a standing backflip or I tell them my RSI is 2.71 and they go, what the? F-? 
So um, it gives me some street cred, but it's a very, very cool test about stiffness because the only thing you're using is feet, ankles, tiny bit of knees. You, in fact, your knees barely have have time to do anything propulsive. Yeah. Fun. And that would make sense because I, I will say, you know, especially here talking about zero shoes, even like somebody that doesn't have good foot mobility and good yeah. foot control will never have good springiness. Like their stiffness score will always be limited. We have a foot assessment we do and they're normally junk on that if they can't do our loading levels there. And, and the foot strength thing, you know, this, this is where what I say to people. So um, I ask them, is weaker better than stronger? And they go, what? No. I go, how do you make your arm? Like, if you want to make your arm weaker, what do you do? They go, I don't know. Don't you use it? Yeah. Like put in a cast, right? They go, yeah, sure. I said, so, you know, put it in a cast. Eight weeks later, it comes out. What? Weaker, stronger? They go, weaker. Cool. What happens if you put your foot in something that doesn't let it move? And they go, oh, yeah. yeah huh. And then they look at their shoes. Huh? It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just like the opening gambit, if you will, because even then they're going to, yeah, but but I need that cushioning. In fact, let's go back to overstriding for a brief second. There are people who think that even if they're overstriding, landing with a relatively stiff leg, et cetera, et cetera, that the cushioning in the shoe is supposed to take care of that. Thoughts, comments, responses? Yes. All right. So one important thing that you brought, like when you were saying that, I think it's an important topic to bring up. Running injuries have a four to six week delay. Interesting. So, because it's micro trauma, it's yeah. not football where you break your leg when a 400 pound lineman rolls on top of it. You break your leg slowly, one step at a time over four to six weeks. So, so are you, wait, are you suggesting that we run with a 400 pound linebacker who at that first moment <laughs> just tackles you and you're done with it? You don't have to put yourself through the next Then you're days. done. You're out of your misery there, right? Yeah. That's yeah, part of your system. For That's one of yes, your interventions yes. is here's a 400 pound guy. So got it. Yes. Um, so sometimes the way I've described uh, the excessive amount of cushioning that's in shoes these days here is that it doesn't fix anything. It just makes you not care. Yeah. It doesn't actually change that. It doesn't absorb it. It's just it's enough of a reduction that you just don't care. But what happens is, is you get that shoe and you go run on it for four to six weeks and you start getting injured. And you're like, well, it can't be the shoe because I've been running for a month of these and it's fine. But what happens is, is that it's micro trauma and it's happening time and time again. And I think one of the big issues, and this is where we combine really well, right? Because when, when you're getting a shoe, when you're looking at it there, you really should be looking at how it impacts your mechanics. Because when we've done this, we see that somebody with a very high stack height with their shoe, so just the how far your foot is actually from the ground, that causes a lot more control. And you talked about the lateral flare on a shoe as well, right? So those types of elements can really significantly change some of your biomechanics if you don't know that it's happening there. So when you're evaluating a shoe, we do a, an analysis all the time to look at it, to say, hey, listen, it might feel great when you're walking around the store and you feel like you're walking on clouds, but 
what's going to happen when you're five or six miles into that and your hips are having to control all that excessive angular velocity that is happening from the increased stack height. I mean, I'll, I'll give my personal story with like, I, you know, I got my zero shoes on right here, right? Like I'm wearing them right now. Um, because I'll, I'll never forget this. I had uh, a shoe on and I have a knee injury for those of you that, don't know me or followed uh, a little bit of social media there with me. Um, I partially tore my patellar tendon. And at the point uh, that we were in Park City together, I was rehabbing it and doing well. But it's a good story here. I got I went for a run and I got to the top of a mountain and there was a giant moose up there. So I had to haul down the mountain to get away from this moose. And I'm rehabbing a torn patellar tendon and it's a partially torn. And so at the conference that day, I, my knee was hurting. I was standing there. It's like, man, my knee hurts. Right. And so Steven comes up and says, have you ever tried? Them? I was like, let me try them on. Like, I'd love to try these on. And instantly I had knee pain relief there. And it was like, it was almost automatic there where I was like, oh, wow, this feels so much better because I'm absorbing more forces through my foot. I'm engaging it more. So, um, yeah, I think I went off on a bit of a tangent no, there, I, but I well, first of make all, sure yeah, I shared that Of course, story. I love it because you said nice things about me So and, and about yeah. our brand. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, in the early, way back when, when, uh, let's see, should I mention this brand? I'll, I'll, I'll hide the name it's a uh, um uh, bloca so when people started wearing bloca shoes um there was a bunch of like olympian level runners that i was training with and i said to all of them um in two years you won't be able to run anymore and they're like what are you talking about i'm putting in more miles than ever with these things they're great i went yeah i know in two years you, you'll be done and without exception two years later they're all cyclists um yeah. and and the irony there is they don't have to be cyclists they can go back to running they just have to get out of those shoes and stop putting mm-hmm. those forces into their knee. It's like, uh, I don't know if you know, Isabel Sacco, she's a researcher, uh, doctor down in Brazil. She took elderly women and who had knee osteoarthritis and put them in a minimalist shoe. There's like a really inexpensive thing you can get in Brazil uh, and yeah. track them over, I think about six months. And for many of them, their knee osteoarthritis went away for the remainder, yeah. just their, their report of pain was significantly reduced. Their use of pain medication significantly reduced, but for some of them gone. And I said yeah. to her, I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. What changed? She goes, they started uh, stopping over striding and they started using the mm-hmm. muscles around their knee to actually act as protectors uh, in addition to moving them forward properly. It's like, yep. So, you know, it's an, it's an amazing thing, but we have this idea. It's like, you know, cushioning feels good. You go to sleep on a Tempur-Pedic mattress, feels great. And so, you know, yep. it feels good. No, so I was, oh, that's where I was going to go with this. So what you said for you, for you just don't notice it or however you said it, my apologies for not remembering verbatim, but um, the way I say it is I get a little more into the physics. I go, there's a difference between f- pressure and force. So the mm-hmm. pressure gets spread out on your foot so you don't feel it, but the force is still going into your body. And the difference between pressure and force is if you find there's a video, many of us have seen it, it's one of the first films ever made. Uh, it's a slow motion film of this big fat guy getting hit with a cannonball in the stomach. It was a, He was like yeah. a carnage. And so you see yeah. this, the cannonball hits him and you watch the fat and all of it, like his whole body respond to getting hit with a cannonball. But then it also throws him back into like this trampoline that catches him five feet behind him. And so the yeah. pressure is what makes him not get injured. The force is what shoves this 300 and something pound guy 
you know, way back into the air practically. And that's what's happening in your body. You don't feel it, but it's still going there. And if we go back to our stiffness talk, what happens is, is that our body can adapt almost instantly to different surfaces and it adjusts the stiffness. So when you run in a very uh, soft surface, then you're going to go through increased excursion unless your body automatically adapts it. So what do you have? You have increased stiffness at all of your joints in the not beneficial way, right? (laughs) Where all of a sudden you get very stiff at the hip, at the knee, at the ankle, because you have such a soft cushion surface that you land on. So the stiffness up at the knee goes way up and you go through very little excursion. And now you're using a limited range of motion in order to absorb the forces. Yep. Okay. Well, by now, if people aren't thinking, cool, uh, what are the other three categories? We've got uh, overstriding, we've got break, well, collapsing. Um, so let's yep. hit the next one. Yes. And just a little caveat to it, like there's four types of overstriders and three types of collapsers too. And there's like subcategories of these for those that are really nerdy like me about it but we we with our military studies we're actually able to say hey if you overstride and like we figured out you do this you'll get better and we showed a 90 second improvement on their mile and a half time and zero injury rates so um but so the next category and these ones are about even prolifically that we see them uh but i would say probably the next most common one is bouncer So this is one, if you could tell with you, but you couldn't tell with me, and for those of you that can't see this, I'm bald. Uh, So a bouncer is somebody with like a ponytail. I'm the opposite of bald. You're the opposite of bald, and I am am shiny head bald here. Uh, So we call it like the ponytail sign, right? So somebody's got a high amount of vertical oscillation, and they are their ponytails whipping up and down because they're going through a lot of excessive motion up and down. So this is, again, a physics problem. What goes up must come down. And so there's higher forces as you go. So as you go up, then you have to come back down. So it often puts higher forces and again, some braking type forces there. Um, we're going to, by the way, after we do the categories, we're going to talk about some of the interventions you gave. And I made a note about that one because there's one in particular that I get a kick out of. It also became, it was a very yeah. common uh, theme at the um, uh, Science for Running Medicine um, event. So, or the whatever the hell is, Mountain Land Running Summit. Science for Running Medicine is a different one that Irene does with Brian Heiderscheidt and, uh, um, Oh, I forget Powers, his first name out at USC. Chris Powers. Thank you, Chris. I don't know why. I'm horrible with names to begin with. And now that I'm 61, it's even worse. And certain names, yeah, it makes me crazy. All right. So bouncer. So basically, well, we'll come back to intervention for that. What's our next one? Uh, Probably one of the most uh, common ones. And this one's hard to fix because your brain doesn't like the fix right away it's called a glute amnesiac so this is give me that again yes yeah glute amnesiac so you're if you've ever seen uh have you ever weakened at bernie's right remember the 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 dead guy in that he kind of like leans back and he's like walking like this um yeah that's somebody that is shifting the loads off of the posterior chain and shifting them to the anterior chain 
and um, they lean back when they run. And I've got a great story about this one because this is one like we always talk about for our people that take our courses. Like if you want to be a hero to runner, you should take our courses. Right. And this is why. So I had this guy. He was uh, a big time. Uh, he was in a Fortune 10 company. He was in the C-suite. He was like a big, big guy. Right? He's like, Doug, I'm going to fly in. I want two days of your time. I'm running a marathon. I need you to fix me. I'm like, OK, sure. Pays for two full days of my time. We come in, we chat. He's like, I, you know, I, I just want to, like, I need to get to the point where I can run at least six miles without pain. I like anytime I get to like five minutes into the run, it hurts. Right. I'm like, okay, well, let's figure it out. And we get him up on the treadmill. I do a gait analysis and I'm like, see that he's just leaning way back. I'm like, okay, hey, try this. Like, try like you're running uphill or you're running into a really stiff wind. And he does it. And he's like, he looks at me, he's like, it doesn't hurt. It's like, okay, we'll keep running. So we run for another two minutes. It doesn't hurt. And I say, all right, go back to your old way. Does it hurt? And he's like, yeah. Okay, go back to the new way. Does it hurt? He's like, no. It's like, okay, well, what, what do you think? What, what, so what else do you need? All right. Get out of here. What else do you need here, right? So I, he, he's like, all right, I'm going to go have dinner. Uh, I'll come back tomorrow morning. And if it still doesn't hurt, uh, like you get the rest of the day off. And so he came back the next day. It didn't hurt. He got back in his private jet and flew home and he was fine. Uh, you oh, know, followed up with him months later. Yes. So it's just, it's again, to the point of like, you just have to know what the right thing is for the right person. Yeah. Um, so glute amnesiac, they, when they lean back, it puts a lot of, it increases the distance of the force application on your knees. So somebody has anterior knee pain and they look like they're kind of sitting back or leaning back when they run. That puts a lot of stress on the front of the body and takes stress off the back of the body. So we teach people how to lean forward from the ankles, not from the waist. Yeah, and the right amount because that's another piece of that. So, you know, it's a funny thing. There's been this whole idea that came out of a number of different um, sources about when you're running, you know, run tall, like go, you know, up, like straight up. It's like, no, 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 don't do that. First of all, because most people don't know what straight up is. Um, secondly, yes. you know, the odds of you being leaning back slightly when you're doing that is very, very high and more, it's just not the right cue anyway. Um, so no. the glute amnesia thing or glute amnesiac, if we're going to label somebody and now there's going to be this whole anti-glute amnesiac thing. It's like, don't uh, glute amnesia <laughs> shame me. Um, um, this is something that I see a lot. So let's, I want to break this down a little bit for the fun of it. So the thing that moves you forward is mostly your butt and your hamstrings. They are prime movers. Having them move back is what moves you forward. And I see this often where, you know, people don't know how to use their butt. And I know Irene Davis does a thing where she'll literally just, you know, stick her finger on someone's glute glute, uh, max and say, just squeeze that. So you kind of push my finger out and some people can't do it. And um, and I've, I've noticed this as well. And then I do something just to do something really weird. I go, I know this sounds like I'm being creepy. I promise you, I'm not doing this for my own fun. Stick your hand on my butt and I and feel it while I walk. And I just take one step, yeah. and they go, Oh Jesus! It's like you know, yeah, that muscle is actually working. Now I exaggerated a little bit for emphasis. Right. That's the thing. I go now try and do that. And amazingly, many people can you know get better just because they felt the difference. So that's a, that's yeah. a very entertaining thing. Um, and that right amount of lean, you know, when you said that, all it made me think of is um, I was on the track during COVID actually, and there was um, a bunch of little kids running around 
And not only were they not overstriding, uh, but they had the perfect amount of lean. I mean, it was perfect. They were, and they had this look on their face. I call it the really weird look called um, smiling. Uh, they just were having fun and everything was yeah. just right. And they, and you can see they're using their butts properly. And it's kind of the difference between like a, a good sprinter is like all butt and a mediocre distance runner has none. And so, yeah. or, you know, and, and there's so many things. Do you want to talk about the things that happen further down the chain um, when someone's glutes are just not functioning correctly, when they don't know how to use them? Right. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting, right? With running here, with walking, uh, um, the glutes are, are more active from a propulsion standpoint. Right. What we say with running, the glutes are actually their highest activity is right before the foot hits the ground. Um, because they're extending the hip backwards so that we're not overstriding too much. Yep. Then the roll on the ground is more actually keeping us stable and keeping us upright from falling over there. Um, and not as much with propulsion, actually, which kind of says that running isn't a pushing activity. It's it's more of a pulling activity. Um, so, But if you don't have the glute, uh, like if your glutes aren't, properly functioning and you're getting some of that pelvic drop, what's happening is then that that contributes to a lot of those collapsing mechanics, because then as you drop your hip, then the knee goes inward, the foot goes out, everything down the chain gets interrupted. And they see that that drives a lot of the stress down the chain. And so people that are even having some foot pain or things like that, it might be coming from proximally up at the hip. And because the body part that hurts is the one that's making up for something else, not doing its job. Well, um, this is a great diagnostic thing. You can see it, you know, many people, they may not be able to see it in their own running because they're not looking down or seeing it from the right angle, but a quick video can sort of determine some of this. I saw something I'd never seen before on the trail by my house um, not too long ago. This woman runs by me and it's important for the story to say she was um, decently overweight, uh, you know, probably, probably weighed about 180 when she probably should have been about 130. Um, okay. It's only relevant because when she ran, so as she's running by me and I'm seeing her from the side, I can see that her left leg is tracking well. Her knee is pointing forward. Her foot is pointing forward. Her right leg, the knee was pointing in, basically almost hitting her mm-hmm. left leg and her foot was pointing out, which just struck me as the craziest mm-hmm. thing I'd ever seen. And then she gets by me and her left glute was a nice full thing for a 180 pound woman. Mm-hmm. And her right glute looked like someone who weighed a hundred pounds. There was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Now, I literally, I didn't stop her, of course. That would have been way too crazy. Um, But, you know, it made me wonder, did she have some surgery, some accident, some something? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, was she just doing this for so long that just that muscle atrophied so much? But I had never seen such a screamingly obvious visual explanation for what was happening with her, everything from the hip down, uh, uh, than seeing her, you know, out of sync butt. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Then you'll see that, that there's a chance that she had no clue. Uh, well, you know, no question. She had no clue. Yeah. And, and I've seen, yeah. and I've seen professional runners like this. In fact, I remember seeing this one, I was, I just remember this, I was driving to brunch with some friends and I see this woman and, you know, you can kind of, you, you can tell when someone knows what they're doing to a certain extent. And so she had that, I'm a serious runner thing going on, but same issue, yes. you know, her, she had vastus valgus, her knees were practically hitting each other, her toes were pointing out and, and yep. just, you can also see in the form. Um, if you know to look, she just was not, her butt was just turned off. I mean, she was, 
She yeah, was yeah. she was like a memento level amnesiac on that one. Um, oh, she yeah. wasn't trying to solve the crime. So the OG um, glued amnesiac there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For people who don't know what that reference was, go watch the movie Memento. It's great. Um, all right. We have yes. one last category. All right. Let's see. Uh, Weaver. Weaver. I think uh, which one we already covered. Weaver. Yep. Yeah. So uh, like Bueller. Bueller. Uh, Weaver. So um, you're. Uh, with weaving, you have a narrow base of support. So instead of your le- feet being a little wider apart, your feet are close together or even crossing over the other side. So anybody that's experienced IT band syndrome or yeah. some of those issues before, um, this is putting those structures on the outside of your leg under tension. And that can cause some of the issues that we're seeing with the weaving mechanics there. So this one's actually a really easy kind of fix. Um, this one is sometimes this is again just like the lean forward if you're glued amnesiac there's the run wider apart if you're a weaver and so I always tell people find a line on the road preferably the white one not the yellow one um, so you don't get hit by a car Uh, but find a line on the road and put one foot on the line and put the other foot don't let it touch the line as well so that gives you a really good external focus of attention that allows you to say whether you're on a track or a road or things like that pick a line one foot can touch the line the other foot can't and that will increase your base of support and take some of the stress off the lateral structures i would say if you're on a road that's a you know one foot on one foot off works if you're on the track i'd go for one foot on either side because the line is narrower but that's just the lines narrower. yeah so yeah before we get into Wait, I want to do this before or after. Let's do this. Let's do this before. I want to talk about interventions, but I want to ask you from your experience, um, and I know there's going to be a lot of individual variation. We're mm-hmm. talking about engendering new movement patterns. This is my undergraduate research. I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And, no, nice. um, and one of the challenges we have is our brains don't like to learn new things. It's energy inefficient mm-hmm. to learn new things, especially movement patterns. Also, because certain movement patterns um, identify us as part of a group, typically our family. You see families who all move the same way. Um, mm-hmm. That's not you know, because of their physiology more often than not. Um, there's also um, there's also one other component where typically the way you learn a new movement pattern, you start really slow so you can make sure you're doing it and you build up over time the speed as you get better at it mm-hmm. until it becomes a non-conscious thing. And actually, the fourth thing is it's we experience it as frustrating, which is actually just the experience of trying to lay down a new neural pathway that we misinterpret as a problem. Um, it's like, no, that's the signal that's telling your brain to try and do something new. Put all that together. What's been your experience with how long it typically takes someone? And it'll be different for each of these different categories, perhaps. How long it typically takes someone to fix any of these issues? No, about five minutes. And to in maintain, reality, well, to, to experience to it. So, yes. Yeah. So here's the thing, right? I'm being uh, kind of very simplified here, but Lightly glib. You, yeah. you did a nice job of laying it out. And what we found is, is that we use cues, right? So I tell you to run wider apart. Or I tell you to lean forward. Replicating the cue is not the goal. The goal is for your body to experience and feel a different way of doing the activity. When you have the access to the information with the 3D, you know which cue is going to make the biggest bang for your buck. So I'm not joking. I say it takes me five minutes to teach somebody how to run and improve their form with that. 
And if they have the strength and the flexibility to do so, I can get them to change in five minutes and it sticks. Now they need to practice and we have them go through a three-week motor learning gait retraining program. But when I bring them back at one week, three weeks, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, they do it because they feel it. One of my favorite things to do during a gait analysis is I get them to change their form. I teach them the drills. I teach them the cues. They run. They feel different. I say, well, how does that feel? And they're like, different. I say, okay, <laughs> go back to running your old way. And what does that feel like? And they're like, no, I won't. I won't run that way ever again. I don't want to run that way. That way hurts. This way feels good. And maybe it's harder to do because when you change a movement pattern, you're not efficient at it at first. And what the literature shows is that it does take about two to three weeks for your body to start relaxing and not using every single muscle on board to get the movement pattern. But when you do, it's far more efficient and it feels way better. And so somebody that can experience a difference instantly will be able to notice and that they can adopt that very quickly. And we take them through. I, I don't. Hey, I've had, like I said, American record holders, national record. Like I take them all through a walk run training program. I don't care if you can run a three forty six mile. You're going to walk run because your body needs to adapt to the stresses that are changing from your old form versus your new form. So in about three weeks, like they should be able to feel it instantly. They should be able to know, Hey, this is different, but it's solidified at about three weeks. So many people by now are thinking, okay, I want to get uh, some gait analysis. We'll get there. I promise you. But in the interim for people who won't do that, can't do that, um, et cetera, let's talk about some of the interventions. And I, I need to, preface this by saying one that you, I hope you mentioned, and if you don't, I'll cue cue you to do it. Um, You are, I'm going to say this and be somewhat self-aggrandizing before I compliment you. Um, I think I'm pretty good at coming up with cues for people to learn to do things differently. You crush me, dude. You've you've come up with things that I've never thought of that are so good. Um, And both metaphors and cues that I just adore. And so, uh, and there's nothing that I find more fun than someone who makes me go, oh shit, why didn't I think of that? So, um, and then I don't feel bad. It's like, uh, no, we got to hang out. So, um, so just as a FYI, you know, I'm, I'm just so impressed with what you came up with. So with that, uh, you know, little smoke going up your butt, tell me, um, let's talk about some of the interventions, some of the cues that you will give people to make some of the changes to some of these categories of problematic running. Yes. Is it, are you alluding to the paper towel roll cue? Did we talk about the paper towel roll cue? No, no, I can't wait to. No, I'm talking oh, about, I'll, okay. just, I'll just give you the hint on what I'm talking about. Uh, yes. Soccer ball. Soccer ball. Soccer ball. Yes. All right. Perfect. So, um, yeah. So oh, you'll love the paper towel roll and cue. Um, so there's even more, right? And this is, this is what I do all day, right? So I've had yeah. to think about it. And the way that I come up with a lot of these cues is I ask people, actually, I I will tell them something and then I'll say, well, so what were you actually thinking about? 
And they're like, I wasn't thinking about what you were telling me. Like, um, you know, like I was thinking about this, right? And, and that's how I've come up with a lot of these cues. So I'll give credit where credit's due because it's not always me oh, there. But so I, I take back everything I said. You suck. Yeah, you just yeah. listen well. Okay. Um, I just listen well. Yeah, that, which is the key. Like that, that <laughs> that's the key there. So, um, but so the cues are to help you experience the form and the posture, right? So for an overstrider, one of the things that we will have them do is is a technique called knee drive. So with knee drive, what we're trying to get them to do is recover quicker and get their their thigh and their shin in the correct position during the swing phase of the mechanics. Wait, I want to I want to pause there for people who are not hip to this. In in running uh, biomechanics, the word recover is basically from your foot. By the time your foot comes off the ground, getting it moving forward and then eventually down till it's. You know, basically getting it moving forward. Swing phase. In front of you. Yeah. yeah. The swing phase. Yeah, where, where your foot's off the ground there. So, so we're that's trying recovery. to get you into that position a little sooner so that at the time that your foot's hitting the ground, you're now extending the leg and your leg is going in the same direction as the way that you want your body to go. Whereas an overstrider, they're typically, their leg's still moving forward and it's jamming into the ground and then the ground's jamming you back. So we do a marching drill uh, and we have people pretend we have a march in place and they're just, you can try this at home again, if you're safe to do so, you just start marching in place and think about that when you have somebody in front of you and they're throwing you a soccer ball and you're kneeing the soccer ball back to them each time, as opposed to juggling the soccer ball. And it's a, it's a kind of a tricky way of teaching somebody that their position of their shin, when your shin is in the right position and your foot stays behind your knee, you're not going to overstride. You want your foot to stay close underneath of your center of mass and you can let the knee go forward, but you want the foot to stay underneath of you there. So kneeing the soccer ball is a way that gets you to get your foot off the ground faster. So we're reducing ground contact time. It puts your thigh and your shin in the correct position so that you can absorb the forces when you hit the ground. And it causes you to land closer to your center of mass. So it kind of hits all of our buckets in one cue there. And it really does help a lot of people with their form. I'll tell you, um, I sat at this very table, two seats away from me was Nicholas Romanoff from the guy who came up with Pose Method. And Nick will videotape you and then show you the videotape and say, you know, here's where things are out of whack. And the basic idea behind Pose is there are a couple of different positions that your body will be seen in if you're running effectively. Same way for ballet, Mm -hmm. if you're doing a plie or a jeté, there's, you know, certain positions you have to hit to in the process of doing that move, because if you don't hit those positions, you're not going to do the move correctly. So he took a look at um, uh, my running and I I was, I'll say in the fun way, three frames off. Basically, my my recovery leg was not getting forward fast enough by just a couple of frames Mm -hmm. when you can see it on on film. And I said to him, so what's the secret to fixing that? And he goes, awareness. I went, that can't be it. Because I'm really aware of what my body's doing but something's mm-hmm. happening that I can't find because I've been working on this one. I can't find it. Now, I haven't been on the track for a little while because I had shoulder surgery recently. But using mm-hmm. this cue, I think may have uh, rectified that. I'll know the next time I can get on the track. And because I want to highlight the thing that it does for me is it get it's everything you just said. It gets my foot off the ground faster with my knee moving in the right direction immediately. 
And yes. you know, again, minor change for what my form is, but significant. Um, I know that's, that sounds contradictory, but it, it's small in terms of distance and et cetera, et cetera. But it makes a big difference yeah. in terms of force application when you're sprinting. Right. It's exponential change doesn't exponential benefit doesn't take exponential change. If you can change a little bit, you will see a very large exponential growth with that because it's going to just a little bit goes a long way. It's that study that I said earlier, 10 percent reduction lets you run twice as far. Yeah. And again, I can feel when I do this, I'm typically do it, you know, doing it just practicing because I can't go full speed. Um, amazingly, a shoulder injury prevents you from running at full speed. Didn't think that would happen. Mm-hmm. So be it. Yeah. But if I decide to, you know, jog a little bit with the dog, um, I can play with it there and backing up to just giving you the time, the idea of giving people the time to learn a new movement pattern. It's something that I'm deliberately thinking about. I can definitely feel the difference. But it's also easy to go back, especially this one. It's easy to go back to something habitual for a while until mm-hmm. it just becomes, and you know, it takes a while for your brain to lay down new neural pathways until that's the way you do it. Actually, I just thought of this a, a friend slash world champion runner slash uh, sometimes coach of mine used to say about doing running drills you want to do them, you're going to do them wrong until you can do them right. And then you want to do them right until you can't do them wrong. Yeah. Which I, I, it's I yeah, I like that. Um, and it brings up a point that I try to relate to runners to try to get their mindset to shift. Running is one of the few sports that doesn't practice. Right. There's some exceptions, right? A lot of people uh, like sprinters are, are better at this, and there are there are exceptions to that. But runners just train. Yeah. They don't practice. It would be like that NBA player we were talking about earlier. If they never took free throws, if they never practiced plays, they did. They just went out and trained. And what we see is that we should be practicing our running form. At least once a week, you should be practicing your form. I uh, We will talk off uh, camera, if you will, because um, I have a thought about that. But that's a whole other thing. Right. I won't be able to talk about it here because it's really cool. And I'm keeping it. All right. Today. I like so, it. Need the soccer ball. Um, love that one. Okay. What else you got? Pull it out of your goodie bag. All right. Um, so some of the other categories are a little simpler, right? Like uh, bouncing. Mm-hmm. You can just look at the horizon and don't do that. Or, or you can focus on your ponytail, right? Like don't bounce up and down. Uh, for the, for hold those. On, hold on, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Not, wait, have you seen the video of Bob Newhart as a therapist with his intervention? Don't do that. Cut that out. Oh, oh, you have to oh look yeah, it cut up. that out. Um, All right. I'll look that up. Yeah, here's the intervention for that. Stop that. Stop it. Stop that. Don't do that. Um, so, uh, you know, you can also, for a bouncer, you can pretend to run under a low bridge or like whatever really relates to that. For the glute amnesiac, where I said, hey, lean into the wind or pretend that you're running uphill, lean from the ankles. I, you know, you talked about not running tall. I, I, I agree. I don't like people to run tall. I like them to run long, right? Like elongate your body like a ski jumper as opposed to tall, uh, you know, like you're trying to posture yourself. So there's those types of things. I got to do this one again. Uh, I keep interrupting because we're having uh, sparking too many thoughts. This whole thing about um, being tall or, or leaning backwards. Yeah. Where you see this even more, it's just the way people walk. Um, the, mm-hmm. the writer, David Sedaris, he's been living in France and his French friends accuse him of walking like an American. He goes, what does that mean? He's you throw your legs in front of you. That's what yeah. they say. And so I see it so often. People are just sl- subtly leaning back. And when you do that, mm-hmm. you're not using your glutes. 
You're using your hip mm-hmm. flexors to throw your legs in front of you. So this yeah. whole thing of like yeah. that little bit of lean, play with that even when you're walking too. Not like, you know, it's not as much ski jumpy, but just a little bit, which will get your hips over yeah. your your ankles, your shoulders over your hips, your head over your shoulders. And you'll feel, it'll feel a little weird. It may feel like you're falling forward slightly. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that. that's the thing. When people that I alluded to earlier that this is one of the hardest for the brain to accept when you change, because I have people all the time that I'll take, this is when I utilize 2D just to verify to them. I'll, I'll tell them to lean forward. And, you know, they were leaning back like this and I'll tell them to lean forward and they think they're like this, right? They feel like they're about to like fall forward, but really they're, they're like barely beyond neutral. They're like, that's what I look like. I feel like I'm going to fall over. It's like, you're not going to fall over, but the brain's perception of that is hard from a balance and a vestibular standpoint that they, they have to kind of reorganize that a bit before they feel comfortable. So, so there's all sorts of we do resisted running we do sled pushes we do all sorts of things for that too yeah just yeah just to kind of drill that thing in of that little bit of lean and actually using your butt so yeah any more i love these all right the paper towel roll let me tell you about this one here all right so we did a study of about a thousand runners and we looked at what caused the overstriding and we were noticing that the position of the shin was one of the biggest things there and it makes sense, right? So I cut a paper towel roll and I put it so that it's on a strap. We, you saw the setup. We have straps around your calf that we put the markers on. So I take and half the paper towel roll is below your knee and half the paper towel roll is above your knee. So then I tell them when they land that the paper towel roll can't touch the part above your knee. So that gets them to be in a position and gets them to experience that without telling them bend your knee. I don't want to tell them bend your knee. I want them to land in a vertically oriented chin position. And I want them to experience that naturally as opposed to just bending their knees the whole time that they run. That's so really that- good. And it relates to the secret thing that we will have to say when we stop recording. There you go. Yeah, I've got some secret ideas about that too here. Yeah. yeah so we'll have to. Yeah, we're yeah. going to have some fun. Um, there. Anyway, but I, want, I do want to highlight what, all of these are really uh, pointing to, which is learning to, I don't, I don't want to say pay attention again, that, that's a little awkward, but it's getting, it's paying attention to the feedback that you can get and doing mm-hmm. these various things to as cues that will naturally engender something different that gives you a different piece of feedback or something that's giving yeah. you real-time feedback like the paper towel roll, um, where you can feel if you've done it wrong, for example. I don't like saying wrong. Yeah. If you've done it one way versus another way, is a better way of saying it. Nah, wrong. What the hell? So, um, so, but all of these are fundamentally designed to make you aware of something that you weren't previously aware of, and then mm-hmm. just engender that, just lock that in over time. Um, and this is the thing, you know, my wife loves to say about our shoes. She goes, they're not a medical device. They're just a coach. They just give you feedback to let you know what you're doing wrong because you're doing it wrong hurts, frankly. And if you, if it doesn't right. hurt too much, if it's just mildly annoying, your brain is going to go, all right, if you're going to keep doing that, I'm going to have to find a way to do it that doesn't suck. So, and usually yeah. it takes very little time for that to happen. So um, just feedback is everything. We don't learn without it. It is. 
Yeah. I think that's where our products and our companies really align too. It is the feedback mechanism of being aware of what your body is doing. Yeah. Um, and seeing that, uh, you know, I, I've wanted to do a study for a long time and maybe we would be perfect to do this together here of like correlating people's walking mechanics to their running mechanics and like how many overstriders uh, overstride when they walk versus overstride when they run. And if we change, you know, if we change one, does it have an impact on the other and they're different movement patterns? So my hypothesis is no, but if we can get them to change both, like, does that have a better impact? And should we not just be looking at somebody's running or walking in isolation? We should be looking at them together. So that's, but feedback is huge with that. And that's, that's what people need is they need feedback of how this is actually performing. It would be interesting if those two things did correlate. It would be just Mm -hmm. as interesting if they uh, had a Jim Neighbors correlation, which, God, that just dates myself. Anyone who doesn't know Jim Neighbors, many people under the age of 40 probably don't. Um, he uh, he talked with this really heavy Southern drawl and he sang mm-hmm. like a high pitched Southern drawl. When he sang, it was this rich, deep, you know, operatic, amazing thing. It didn't sound like it was coming from the same person. So there may be... Yeah. You know, a lack of correlation between walking form and running form. But I, but even if there were, I can't imagine one wouldn't impact the other. There's actually one other thing that'd be interesting to mix into that. Um, uh, I've been playing around with breathing in a different way. One of the people I had on the mm. podcast um, does a, it's just a product called the 360 core belt. Basically, it's just a belt, like an elastic belt you put around your waist, but has little things in it that poke you just on the outside of your abs and just uh, uh, on your spinal erectors. And the idea is when you put this on, when you breathe, you want to get all of those to expand. So the 360 is how you're breathing into your lower abdomen to expand everything, which is actually what weightlifters do to be stronger Mm -hmm. is they just force that, uh, that movement pattern. And when you walk or run like that, but especially if you walk like that, I found you can't, if you pay attention to your breathing like that, you can't walk wrong as easily. I was about to stop mm-hmm. at wrong at all, but it just, there's something that that does. Some of it is many people, if they just breathe in their chest, that's going to be one thing. Many people think that abdominal breathing is just pooching out your stomach. But if you do that whole 360 thing where you're getting pressure in the entire yeah. abdominal cavity, it tends to shift your center of mass in a way, or you shift your center of mass to accommodate that. That might be an interesting. I think that's big in the martial arts community as well. And I, so I've been experimenting with some of this as I've been coming back from my own injury. Um, I was like, well, I'm running slow anyway, so I might as well practice some uh, like closed mouth running there. Um, so I have, and it's, it's really amazing personal journey. And I'm not like I'm a I'm an expert on running gait and I'm learning a lot about uh, about breathing here now because it's very interesting. Um, It's uh, I have seen just in like a month or so of doing it, I've dropped a minute per mile on the speed that I could initially do it with. Um, And then the other like my heart rate at the um, at the speeds when I'm not doing it. Uh, is significantly lower and I just there's a, a much more feel of stability now I would love to 
match it up with some running biomechanics, um, but there's only so many hours in the day for, for some of these things here. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's really interesting, the breathing. We could probably talk another hour on that. Uh, just uh, we, we could, but ironically, I just realized I'm having dinner with one of the top breathing experts on the, in the world. It's an old friend of mine who's been teaching this for Jesus. We've known each other for 40 years. He's been doing it for at least 10 years before I met him. So um, oh, uh, I'm going yeah. to bring that up with him. It'll, it'll be fun. All right. So I can't, I can't overestimate or overstress or uh, I don't know, whatever it is. I, people really need to um, go get kid analysis. And I, I say this, um, I'm flashing back to a couple of stories with zero shoes where there would be a time where somebody would say, um, Hey, the rubber in your shoes has uh, got some problems. And I go, what are you talking about? They show me that there's a whole lot of abrasion on the outside of their heel. And I go, Oh, you're overstriding and heel striking. They go, well, I don't do that. I'm a certified fill in the blank, you know, running teacher. I go, yeah, dude, it's physics, man. You know, abrasion comes from excessive horizontal force and friction. I mean, what do you, what do you want? Send me a video. And this guy sent me a video and um, it took a while. There was something wrong with, wrong with my video player and I could only hear it for at first, but I could hear bump, 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 bump with every step. And then I finally yeah. got the video to work and I invited him to take a look and I showed it in slow motion. I'm drawing lines on the screen to show that he's overstriding and heel striking. It took him 20 minutes to agree that what I was showing was a real thing. But then he said, yeah, yeah but I don't do that. Dude, it is a video <laughs> of you <laughs> made by you. I, I don't know how yes. to respond to that. Or there was another yeah. one where someone put on our sandals, went for a run, like in a big loop, you know, uh, around his camera and came back saying, yeah. wow, these things will really let you know if you're overstriding, which is his way of saying, uh, wow, I just found out that I'm really overstriding. So yes. but conversely, I, when I was in Bill Sands lab, I saw people who, when they ran barefoot, had perfect form. Mm -hmm. When they put on any shoe, including something that was supposedly minimalist, not ours, they were overstriding and heel striking. And here's the kicker, mm -hmm. did not know they were doing it. I mean, literally yeah. like had a hard time believing it when they looked at the video. So, yes. but if you don't have, you know, amazing proprioceptive skills, which almost none of us do, which means knowing where your body is in space, not how you feel the ground, um, pet peeve yeah. of mine, uh, then getting video feedback is critical. And even just video feedback is never going to be enough because it's not showing you the level of information that you need and um, in, in a number of ways. So highly encouraged. And again, most people doing gait analysis have a case of what I affectionately refer to as cranial rectal reorientation syndrome. So just don't go down to your local running store and have them do gait analysis. That's not what we're talking about. Um, in fact, I wish maybe, you know, what you're gonna have to do is um, send me a little video clip or some images to show what it looks like when someone gets analysis yeah, yeah. done and we'll include that in the show notes. Um, that would be really, really cool. I mean, of course, once I say, tell people how to get in touch with you, you'll they can see it there as well, which brings me to that. If somebody wants to have get analysis done by you or people that you have trained, how should they find you and or those people? So this is a huge thing that we've really worked on because our mission at Run DNA is making gait analysis just a staple of the running community. Like it's it's just a thing you do. Everyone gets a gait analysis. Um, so we have a find a provider map. 
of all the people that have been certified and I filled out the map and we have our sites. We're just about, I think actually might have hit our hundredth person uh, with the 3D technology right before we got on this call. So we've got about a hundred sites out there. And probably by the time you hear this over a hundred sites that are doing the 3D analysis across the country. So find a certified running gate analyst, uh, rundna.com. R-U-N-D-N-A.com and check that out. Um, and that's a great way to find somebody in your area that's really interested in GATE and is a student of it and has had our training and is not just going to tell you to stop running. So that's <laughs> what I think a lot of runners fear. And that's not what you're going to get from from our providers there. So that's that's probably the best way. And then there's social media. We're Run DNA system on Instagram. I'm Doug Adams PT, but RunDNA.com. And I, a lot of runners actually really do enjoy some of our classes as well. We have a decent amount of runners that are a student of the sport. We have a endurance running coaching course that is actually, it's really picking up a lot of steam recently because it, it teaches you a lot of the X's and O's of running and training. So if you're self-trained and you're looking for another level of um, interest, we have a course and actually there's a sale going on. I don't know when this is going to get published, but through November 11th, um, there's a sale. Uh, It it ain't going to happen by then. No, no, but that's all right. Yeah, you know, follow up and and sign up for our mailing list so you can hear about the next sale too. So awesome. Yeah. Um, I had a thought. You just gave me a thought that popped into my head and it popped out of my head. Oh, it's simply this. Um, I, what's the, well, you don't have a treadmill fast enough to handle sprinting. So at some point, we have to talk about that. Yeah. I, um, their treadmills exist. I just oh no, they uh, exist. They just cost yeah. like fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yes. Yeah. Those are uh, those are nice and expensive. But I've uh, I've, uh, I've been on one in Bill Sands' lab. It was super fun. Yeah. Uh, first of all, he straps oh, you yeah. into a Mission Impossible harness. So if you know something goes yes. wrong, you don't face plant and get thrown out the back of the treadmill. Um, so you're just hovering yeah. over it by a couple of inches. Which you know the first thing I did was like just fell for the fun of it to have fun doing that and pretend that I was oh, yeah. stealing diamonds. Um, and uh, um, I did other weird things as, as a former gymnast, you know, inst- if I'm going to get off the treadmill rather than slow down, I just took like a little jump and grabbed the bar in front of me and kind of flipped underneath the bar. And they're like, what are you doing? And it's the easiest way to get off. I went, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> so anyway, someday, yeah. someday we'll, we'll handle sprinters as well. A rare group of humans who don't get enough attention in my sprinter opinion. So all that said, Doug, not at all surprising. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I really do hope that uh, a bunch of people take you up on the offer to use your your practitioner, locator, whatever the hell phrase you used, you know, to find someone who's doing this and go have some yeah. analysis done. And all I can tell you is I don't care how good or bad of a runner you think you are, this can and will help. And um, yeah. And I know that many runners who think they're really good runners, they're afraid of finding out that there's a problem. And I would encourage you yes. to just uh, don't do that. Just stop that because, uh, you know, learning, I know we like to think that we're above all that, but um, we're not. And, you know, finding that little thing, you'll get over the embarrassment of it when you feel the effect of it. So go for it is my my thing. And again, and it's easier than you think. It's not as hard as you think either. It's it's small tweaks. We're not going to change everything. It's when you find the right thing, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. Yeah. And you get a whole lot of reward on the backside. 
Perfect. So speaking of um, effort and reward, I don't know, really not that, but um, uh, just a reminder, go back to our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Find previous episodes, ways you can find us online. If you're not getting this podcast from a podcast provider you like, you'll find the other ones, kind of all of them. And if you have any questions or comments, if there's someone uh, you want to recommend for the show or something that you think I got totally right or wrong, or again, if you think I have a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome happy to hear it you can drop me an email move m-o-v-e at join the movement movement.com and most importantly between now and whenever you we we virtually find each other next go out have fun and live life feet first